Uh, as I come to speak this morning from uh, Ephesians, it doesn't say that on the screen there, but if you've been here the last little while, you'll know that we're doing a series, there we go, it's everywhere now, through the book of Ephesians. And as I've been preparing for this morning, it's had me reading and studying in that book again. And I say, I have to say, it brings me here this morning, with my, my heart is full this morning, Uh, I've been refreshed by reading God's word, and there is just so much goodness in the passage that we have this morning, which is in Ephesians. We're going to be going through Ephesians 2 verse 11, right through to Ephesians 3 and verse 13. Um, We'll get to the text in a minute. Um, We've already started to think about this, the fact that today we're celebrating our church birthday, and uh, there are, have indeed been 34 years of, aw- of being awesome. Uh, not that we've been awesome, but we've experienced God's awesome goodness and care for us, that we're here. Th- those few of you who were around here 34 years ago um, probably didn't imagine this. Uh, and here we are, and, and God has been good to us. But not, don't just want to think about us as a church this morning, um, but also about what God has been doing in the city throughout that season. So just going to think, that's the picture of Corn Market. I just want to take us back uh, a little bit into the 20th century and talk about what has happened in the city and, and with churches. If we go back 70-odd years to the 1950s, there were uh, pretty much all of the churches in the city were white, British, English-speaking churches, uh, with a possible exception of the Greek Orthodox Church in North Oxford. Uh, After the Second World War, and until it was clamped down upon in new legislation in 1972, there was an open door for people from across the Commonwealth to move to the UK, and there was a great increase in the number of people, particularly from the Caribbean that moved to the UK, but also from India and Pakistan. And by the 1960s, there were a few more churches that weren't simply English in Oxford. Uh, There was the Church of God of Prophecy and the New Testament Church of God, uh, two thriving black majority or Pentecostal churches in the city. And in 1970, the United Asian Baptist Church was also begun here in Oxford. Um, Come the 1980s, uh, Oxford Community Church was begun in 1985. At that time, we were the only church in the city that would have uh, gone under the, the sort of the label of being a charismatic church, and many of you will know what that means, an openness to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, an emphasis on the kind of uh, sharing and participation that we've already seen this morning, as, as John shared, and so Jez has spoken, and Ruth prayed out, that we're a body together. Uh, through the 1980s and on into the 1990s, the city has continued to change. There has been a rapid growth in people moving to Oxford from right around the world. And Oxford is now the third most multi-ethnic place in the southeast of England, after London, which is admittedly quite a big chunk, and Slough. Uh, Oxford is the next most multi-ethnic place in the, UK, uh, in the southeast of the UK. Uh, In the 1991 census, it was discovered that 9% 
of the city's population, it was then non-white. And uh, there were, according to the 1991 census, just 593 Africans living in the city. Come 2011, the non-white proportion of the city's population had risen from 9% to 22%. And the number of Africans, just to take one example, had risen to 4,456. We've yet to come to the 2021 census, but the current estimate is that that number, that percentage has now risen to 28%. And the diversity continues to increase. You may or may not know there's a significant East Timorese population in the city now, for example, because they have Portuguese passports and have been able to come here. As this diversity has grown, so have the number of churches. It's wonderful to have uh, Chandra and Padak and uh, their younger people here this morning. Do you want to stand up and wave, actually? That would be great, because I'd like people to know who you are. Uh, so it's, it's wonderful to have you here with us. Uh, they are leading a Nepalese church here in the city, because one of the things that took place in, uh, under the, I think it was Tony Blair's government that said that those who'd served as Gurkhas should be allowed to come to Britain on retiring, and many have, although most Nepalese Christians in this country were born again after coming here. That's, that's right, isn't it? God's doing a great work amongst that uh, expat community here. Uh, But there are, uh, there's a Malayalam-speaking, Tamil-speaking church in Oxford, Chinese, Korean, Nigerian churches, uh, Brazilian, South African, Kenyan, Filipino. There's been an Iranian fellowship here in the city, several Punjabi-speaking churches. And that's a wonderful thing. It's not only understandable that people gather to worship in their mother tongue, but it's wonderful that in this city, all of that diverse worship is being lifted up Sunday by Sunday in Mandarin, Yoruba, Kikuyu, Portuguese, German. There's a German Lutheran congregation that meets in the university church and much, much more. And what we're going to find with our text this morning is that that is both wonderful and then there comes a challenge, which is that actually the state that we have across the city at the moment is also inadequate. It's it's wonderful, and it's also inadequate. It's inadequate for us all to sort of be here, but be separated from each other. It's inadequate if we're isolated from each other, because God has made us all one. And that's what we're going to look at. So uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verses, uh, read verses 11 to 18. The words are not going to appear on the screen. I'm hoping you have a means of finding them yourself to follow through if you want to, or else listen really carefully. What these verses start to outline for us, or well, that's all I've said all of that, uh, is what we can call God's peace plan. Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 18. Therefore, 
it starts. And you should know that where the scripture says, therefore, you ask what it's there for. Why is it saying that? It's referring back to what there was before. And uh, as Lois explained to us about being made alive uh, a couple of weeks ago, the bit that just came before in chapter 2 described Christian salvation, how we're made alive in Christ as we come to him and receive the salvation that he offers. So this passage uh, starts by saying, well, since there has been that salvation, therefore, see there are some consequences of that salvation. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, now the word Gentiles means all of the nations in the world apart from the Jews. That's what that word means. Actually, the Greek word is ethne, from which we get our word ethnic. Remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. It's a reference to the Jewish people. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, to understand what is being explained here, we need to know that before Christ came, the Jewish people had a law given through Moses, which was like a defensive wall for them against the influence of all other nations. In fact, there's a letter that was written in the second century BC, written by someone called Aristeus. And the 139th verse of it says this. Now, our lawgiver, this is a Jewish man writing, our lawgiver, being wise and specially endowed by God to understand all things, took a comprehensive view of each particular detail and fenced us around with impregnable ramparts and walls of iron that we might not mingle at all with any of the other nations, but might remain pure in body and soul, free from all vain imaginations, worshipping the one almighty God. 
In particular, Jews were at that time, and many still today, would only share the meal table with circumcised men and would only eat kosher food, which most people couldn't prepare. And so they were, they were cut off from genuine friendship with people of other nations, of other ethnicities. Uh, some of you will have read the story of Asia Bibi in the press over the last little while, this Pakistani Christian lady uh, who this last week was finally, finally acquitted for the second time by Pakistan's Supreme Court of the charge of blasphemy. Uh, And well done to Pakistan for, for getting there. This lady is a Christian who was working on a farm with Muslim co-workers picking berries. I don't know if they were goji berries or what sort they were. But it was a hot day, and her co-workers asked her to go and fetch water. She went and fetched the water as they'd asked. On the way back to the group, she paused and took a sip from the jug of water. And her co-workers were furious. Because in Pakistan, many conservative Muslims don't like to eat or drink with people of other faiths, believing that non-Muslims are impure. Asia's co-workers told her that she was dirty and that she was not worthy of drinking from the same cup as them. And uh, an argument erupted, fierce words were exchanged, which is what led to the blasphemy accusation for which she's been imprisoned for nine years mostly in solitary confinement, and is just now being freed. Now, that seems quite extreme. Uh, Before we get too self-righteous or sort of self-confident, well, that might be the sort of thing that other people do, do you want to remind us of Jesus' words when he said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. It would be good for us to take a moment to pause and to ask, are there any planks in our own eyes? Are there any ways in which we have looked down upon people of different ethnic origins? In particular, as this passage speaks of people coming together in Christ, how many times have we judged Christians, other Christians, to somehow be beneath us. Well, we might have sometimes found ourselves saying of other Christians, well, they're not so well educated. Or, you know, they're just too loud for no good reason. Their women are too submissive. Or their men are too macho. I wonder if, like me, you're guilty of ever having said of another church, oh, those crazy Pentecostals. (laughs) When uh, that may just be for some of us an acceptable way of looking down on an African church. I wonder if there are any planks in our own eyes, have we dismissed others 
in some way as having lesser worth. Of course, it works the other way around as well. When I've been in India with Mike Bowman, it's great to have Liz here this morning. He and I were both judged unspiritual for wearing wedding rings. Because uh, there are some Indian churches that know better. This is um, most immodest. Uh, in France... Um, I've been judged, perhaps not unspiritual, but certainly uncultured and looked down upon for not knowing how to cut the cheese in the right direction. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. These things matter to some. I once had a brilliant conversation with my friend. My brother is married to a French woman, and I had a brilliant conversation once with my French father-in-law, sorry, his father-in-law, who is a Christian, about all of the cultures in the world and how they all had value. And we were sat at a dinner table, and there were lots of pots of yogurts on the table. He started piling up the pots of yogurt. His English isn't very good, and my French is limited. And he tried to explain to me, and I said, yeah, globalization, learning from other cultures, that's a good thing. And he carried on piling the yogurt pots. And he said, yes. He said, look, it's like this. There's all this diversity, different flavors. And he said, and French culture's at the top. <laughs> Now, the gospel of Jesus provided an answer to all this for the Jews and the Gentiles. And the same answer applies for us today. So we're just going to go backwards through the latter part of this text and see what it says. Oh, that's the lady I've just been speaking about. Here we go. It says in verse 18 that everyone, which means... Everyone, no exceptions, as everyone from every ethnic background now finds access to God through Christ. It says it was the same gospel that was preached to those who are far away, which in the, the, the book of Ephesians is the Gentiles, that's actually all of us, and to those who are near. Note that Paul, in writing this letter, knows that the Jews had some advantages. Their particular heritage, which included Abraham and Sarah and Ruth and her grandson David and Esther and Daniel, that gave them an advantage. They were nearer in. But actually, the same gospel was preached to everyone because verse 16, both those far away and those near all needed reconciling to God. Verse 15 says that by that means, the same gospel going to everyone, God created one body, one family for everyone who comes to him through Christ. And therefore, in verse 14, it's already been explained that the iron fence that surrounded the Jewish people which was the law of Moses, is thereby destroyed or set aside. The thing that had prevented people eating together, the thing that had prevented people becoming friends, of accepting one another as brothers and sisters was done away with. Now, at this point, a number of you have a question, which is, does it really say that the law of Moses is set aside and destroyed because that's like a chunk of the old testament which is in our bible right well if you read this passage in isolation you might read it that way but the rest of the new testament gives us a fuller picture and helps us to understand what's going on here jesus did indeed very clearly replace 
some aspects of the law of Moses. Most especially, he said, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 7, that it's it's not the food that someone eats that makes them unclean, but rather it's what comes out of someone's heart that makes somebody good or bad. And that changed swathes of the application of the law of Moses. Uh, But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also said that he had not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You can find that in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. And Jesus repeatedly not only supported parts of the law, but intensified them. So instead of banning just murder, he said you can't get angry. Instead of simply banning adultery, he said you can't be lustful. So how can we make sense of this? Let me suggest to you that it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like this. That what Jesus did was give us a radically upgraded law. It's like the difference between these two vehicles. On the left, we've got one of the first cars. Now, there's a gentleman in front of it. And if you look very carefully, he's waving a flag just in front of him. You, I can see it a lot easier on this screen. It's not come out so clearly. But you may know that when cars were first invented, such was the anxiety around them that someone had to walk in front of them with a red flag <laughs> to let everybody know to stay away because this was dangerous. Uh, Contrast the kind of bus that we're very familiar with today. I want to suggest to you that this illustrates for us the difference between the law of Moses and the radically upgraded uh, moral law and direction that we find in Christ. The old one operated in a way that kept people away. But the new one welcomes people in. Now, just to be clear, the Old Testament law of Moses had never been effective at reconciling people to God. Because right back when it was given, it was given through Moses to people after God had already chosen them. God did not meet the people of Israel in the desert and say, look, I've got some rules If you stick by them, then I think you could be my people. He turned up and said, you're my people. Um, I've decided I'm going to be your God. So here we are, we're together, I'm making a covenant with you. Now then, in this covenant, here's how to live. The law of Moses never functioned as a way to be reconciled or to come into relationship with God It was given as guidance to people whom God had already extended his love towards. But the new covenant, the new arrangement, the new law in Christ does create a way in which people can be reconciled with God. If this morning God seems distant to you, uh, there's good news. That's what Christians get excited about. Uh, that Jesus made a way that those who are far away and think, I don't know where God is, I don't know who he is, and I certainly don't have any friendship with him, that can change. 
because there's a message that allows people to be reconciled to God. Now, with this illustration, I hope you can see that there's still much that we can learn from the old. It's not lost to us, it's not irrelevant. Uh, But we do have to look at the old covenant through the lens of Jesus' teaching in order to understand it properly. This is how it works then. This is what is explained to us in this text. That all who come to Christ, whether they started nearby or whether they started far away, find themselves together in one family. All on the bus together. We find ourselves in a family and we discover that everyone else who's there got adopted into that family in just the same way. There's no, no one who has a privileged position because of how they came in or where they came from. All of that's irrelevant. And this is a significant social reality that we need to take time to digest and to put into practice. It's no mere byproduct of God's master plan either. It's not like God said, here's a bus, this will take you into relationship with the Father. By the way, when you get on it, you'll happen to find that there are some other people there. Don't worry about it. Just, you know, keep quiet and don't talk to them. (laughs) No, because it says in verse 15 of chapter 2, very clearly, uh, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. His purpose was to bring people together. It's not accidental. It's not some kind of byproduct, you know, become a Christian and, you know, there'll be some other people, you know, do with it what you will. No! God's purpose was to bring different people together and to form one humanity, which, as the text says... Goes on to say, would be a place that God would be pleased to dwell. So, reading from verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is what God was always after. Our theme for this whole series of Sunday mornings is God's great plan. And this is God's great plan. This is what he set out to do. And uh, it's a good plan. It's a good one. And when we go on into chapter three, we'll find out that this good plan, this vision, is what motivated Paul. So in chapter three, it says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then there's a break. It seems like that um, that something's gone on because he changes tack completely. He has this thought, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, surely you've heard, and if you 
take the text and you read it, you'll find that in verse 1, Paul sort of starts out saying something, which he returns to in verse 14 by praying. And that's where he's going, and that's what Eileen's going to speak about next week. But in, before he gets to the prayer, he goes, actually, there's something else I want to say. And instead of going back, and he didn't have a delete button. Anyway, it's been left there as God's word to us. And he says, I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus for your sake. And then he takes this tangent and says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given through me, given me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mercy, this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory." Now, from this chunk of the letter, I'm going to draw out two further points about peace. And they will be a peace that is proclaimed and a peace that is pursued. Now then, uh, we've already seen that a global, multi-ethnic church is God's plan. But many people see religion as divisive and as a cause of conflict in the world. I'm sure you've had com- the kind of conversation with, with other people. Uh, of course, in some cases, conflicts that seem to be simply between, between two religious groups are better understood as conflicts between two ethnic groups that happen to have different religion. But there are stories from human history, and some still today, of religiously motivated conflict. And uh, some of you will know that when we put in, first put in a bid to start Tyndale Community School, the school in which we're partners in the east part of the city, one of the city's councillors wrote to the Oxford Times about his anxiety concerning our proposal. And his letter went along and said, this. He said, if this school, being run by evangelical Christians, is allowed to go ahead, it will bring the religious divisions of Northern Ireland to the streets of Oxford. 
and uh, there's, an ang- there's, an, there's an anxiety that that's what religion does. That once people start to gain a particular perspective and hold it deeply, it will fragment society and cause conflict and therefore is something about which to be worried. I put three pictures up here which in different ways present a glimpse of what God has in mind. None of them are complete, some more complete than others. Um, A glimpse of what it might be for God's peace to be proclaimed. The top left there is actually not only Christians, but people of different faiths walking together. Uh, If you look carefully, there's the former Bishop of Oxford, John Pritchard, next to the ubiquitous Sheikh Ramsey. Uh, And to to their right, our left, um, Catherine Schock, who's an artist, but also a leading member of the Jewish community in Oxford. Some Sikh children holding up the banner. And for those of you who don't know, there's a thing that happens in Oxford each year when people from different faiths meet together outside the synagogue in Jericho and walk together into the city centre, stop at uh, St. Giles Church, stop at the University Church, and then walk on down to the central mosque at Mansell Way uh, and there have curry. And uh, one year, I was participating in that walk, which is intended as a demonstration that actually religion doesn't have to be a cause of conflict of violence. I was participating in that walk, and who should cycle by but Richard Dawkins? <laughs> As we were walking through Radcliffe Square, and um, I saw him come in past the university church on his little bike, and, and, and he looked up, and then looked again, and then nearly fell off his bike, <laughs> and then stood there looking shocked. Because people of different faiths were displaying friendship and not taking, you know, chunks out of each other. And that's different to the perception that many secular people have. The assumption is that uh, that religion is problematic and we were demonstrating something different. You see, but... That's still not quite all that Christ has died for, that people of different faiths would not be attacking each other. is a good start. It's hardly the end game. Uh, (laughs) Once when we were trying to plan... I used to sit... I got involved in this because I sat in the Oxford Council of Faiths for a few years representing the city's evangelical Christians. And... um, I was the youngest person there by a generation. And uh, they therefore, from time to time, asked me what I thought might be useful to do to draw in more young people. Young people. And I, um, I, on one occasion, I said, I know what would be really good. Because what we do is we go to the synagogue, and, they, and at each place, somebody prays a prayer about, isn't it all lovely that you know, we're all together? So wouldn't it, be a, wouldn't it be an upgrade if instead of simply praying for one, that sort of a thing, it, at least a couple of the places where we stopped, we got someone who'd converted from one religion to another to talk about how positive that had been for them. <laughs> because that would really show that we're together and that we can, we can you know, get on, wouldn't it? <laughs> 
which didn't go down well. No, it didn't. It did not go down well. There was, there was silence. There was tumbleweed. And then there was an axe that cut me off at the knees, very clearly saying how... Well, someone's saying, the problem is, you Christians, you convert people from our communities. Uh, most faith groups aren't about that. Most faith groups, Buddhists, Jews, Sikhs, most just want to live in peace. They're not trying to get Christians to join them. Uh, see, we have a different gospel. We know that it's, there's something that works for all people and, and is a blessing for all people. Anyway, uh, so faith's walking together is a good thing, but there's something more than that. That's not the end game. Uh, on the top right there is uh, Love Oxford, uh, nearly two years ago now. It's happening again this summer in July, when many churches from across the city get together and worship together. And what we have there are people of many different ethnic backgrounds all worshipping God together, all witnessing together to the love of God that they've described. And that too is a glimpse of how things are meant to be. I do find myself, when we gather for that, pleased at the celebration that's going on and still frustrated that people who've gathered together for a moment talk to the people they already know and then go way back to their corners again. (sighs) That's a frustration. And then the bottom picture is children from Tyndale Community School. The fella in the middle is Matt Watt, the head teacher there, and then the King and Queen of Spain. And some of you will know that when the King and Queen of Spain came to visit Oxford, um, the person responsible for organising their visit thought it would be brilliant to have children from all different ethnic backgrounds in Oxford together welcoming the King and Queen of Spain to show what a city of harmony we are. And when they thought about how they could arrange that, they thought, oh, we should pick the phone up to Tyndale Community School. Um, there's, a, there's a witness in that for people who think that our faith divides. Uh, the scripture says that God was... in. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. I have to be honest and say, when that event took place, I was less interested in what was being heard by the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, and mostly just hoping that that city council would have seen the press article (laughs) about it. Honestly, that was very ungodly of me, but... um, The vision is of people of all nations and languages in genuine friendship, uh, worshipping together and witnessing together. Not just gathering for a moment and being able to maintain niceness for an hour or two. There's something more. said it's wonderful to have Nepalese friends here this morning and wonderful that you're able to have a conference here in a few weeks' time. We're hoping for more connection as time goes by. We've been having conversation about the Nepalese church meeting here on a Sunday regularly in such a way that we could connect, eat together, become friends. Um, Some of you will know the chef who works in this building, Max, who is Polish, 
and he's quite a dark horse, is Max, because you wouldn't know it easily from talking to him, but he heads up a network of house churches across the UK somehow in his spare time, <laughs> made up of Polish people, and actually, uh, in two weeks' time, they're starting a Polish church here in Oxford, in Headington, because, as Max says to me, that's Polish city <laughs> in Oxford. Um, but they, starting something separate as they are, Max is saying, you know, that won't do, because we need to connect with other Christians and not just be poles by ourselves. And so they've asked, would it be okay if they invited people from all of their Polish house church network to come to our summer camp? And we've said, yes, that would be a fine thing. And so when, and you've got a leaflet about our summer camp um, lying around there, when we meet together with churches in our Salt and Light network in the summer, there's going to be a load of Polish people there. And that's going to that's be an upgrade for us. And I have to say, in this, in this season, I was going to say this year of Brexit, who knows if it will happen this year, in this season of Brexit, um, what a delight. Uh, not all... But some Brexiteers seem to be motivated by keeping polls out. Some Remainers, not all, say that we need them for economic reasons. We say that the Christian faith makes us brothers and sisters. We are bonded more tightly than a national identity could ever achieve in Christ. This is the peace that we proclaim, and I pray that it would ring out into our society as we live it out. It's game-changing stuff. And a peace pursued. Now, this, is hap- this, this togetherness in Christ is happening. It's happening. It's, it's, I have the joy of standing out and looking out at you, and the joy of seeing that this is a less white congregation than it once was. It's wonderful. It reflects what's going on in our city, and we're grateful for it. Um, it is happening. I do you want to say it's not always easy? Uh, uh, without saying which church it is, though some of you will guess, there's another church in our Salt and Light network that has been pleased to welcome many people from Central Asia into its congregation in the last few years, baptising many of them, had had previously been very much a white British church and is now changed. And that's wonderful. There are some challenges. When men uh, from Central Asian background uh, wander into the kitchen and tell the English women how it should really be run, <laughs> that's not straightforward. Some of the women leave the church, saying this isn't what I was part of. Uh, Some of the same men, being lovely and friendly, go up to small children that they've never met before and who don't know them on a Sunday morning and pick them up and kiss them all over. It's very friendly and lovely of them, but not expected by the parents who might say, this isn't the church I wanted to be part of anymore. Uh, And of course it goes the other way. Um, Those of us brought up in a Western culture 
don't realise how utterly individualistic we are. And many people coming to, to our church will honestly find us... They, they won't look at our culture and think, what wonderful freedom, but what surprising chaos. Everybody wears what they want to wear without thought to its impact on other people. Uh, children run around having fun. We think, oh, great, they're enjoying themselves in the presence of the Lord. But others may see things differently. And this is a, this is a challenge for a church that is going to be a place where brothers and sisters come together from different nationalities. Paul, writing about this, says, verse 1 of chapter 3, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. You see what he's saying here? It's like this vision of people from all different ethnic backgrounds getting together. It's, it's worth being a prisoner. It's worth being in prison to see that come to pass. In verse 7, he says, I became a servant of this gospel, and he's explained what this gospel is. This gospel is a message that brings people together from every tribe and nation, every tongue, every background, every culture. He says, I'm a servant of that gospel. And he finishes this chunk by saying, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. He's willing to suffer. Martin Luther King, whose picture we have on the screen was another person who pursued this vision. Great, the band are coming back up because they know what's coming. Uh, Martin Luther King's famous speech, I Have a Dream, is widely quoted. There are a few lines in it that I think are less widely quoted, which go like this. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I will go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. This is a, this is a vision worth being put out for. This is a vision worth suffering for. This is God's great plan. What can we do? I have a simple suggestion, and then we're going to pray together through a song. My simple suggestion is this. Reach out to Christians from other cultures. Do you know someone that you work with who is a Christian from another culture than your own? Ask them about their church. See what you can learn. And then, why not ask if it would be okay for you to visit? If, um, you know, pastor of Oxford Community Church, clearly I like you being here on a Sunday. 
I wish more of you were here more often. <laughs> I do. Uh, but if you're going to spend a Sunday visiting a, another ethnic church somewhere to learn about it, you've got a free pass. You go, you go do that. And come back and tell others what you've learned, what you've discovered about the grace of God through other people. Build bonds of Christian friendship and let's see what God will do. We're going to finish with a song, which is also a prayer. In 1966, in Chicago, there were race riots. A, black, a young black man had been arrested and riots erupted, which left 34 people dead. In that same year, a pastor in the city wrote a song about the vision that we've seen this morning about God's great plan. And the band are going to lead us in it. And it's a song that allows us all to respond, I trust, with some sense of joy at God's great plan, but it's also a prayer.